0: This week I did something else, I heard a story about two young boys who were throwing rocks behind an old church, not our church, but another church, and as boys do, they ended up deciding to take aim at one of the big plate glass windows that was there, and so one of the kids, man, just hauled off through a rock through the window, and about that time, the old pastor came out of a darkened doorway, and grabbed them both probably by the ear, and brought them inside to the church, he set one down on the front row of the sanctuary and he took the other one into his office for some questioning. So he asked the boy, he said, "Why would you do that to God's house?" The boy just sat there in silence looking at him. He'd decided with his buddy that if they got caught, they weren't going to say anything. They knew you never rat on your friend. So he just stared at the pastor. The pastor asked him again, "Why would you do that to God's house?" Still, the boy just stared. So the preacher digs deep, finds another strategy. He's going to get theological, try to work in the Holy Spirit conviction that he knows that he can muster. And so he looks at the boy and he says, son, where is Jesus? Doesn't break through the boy's defenses, sits in silence. Finally, on the verge of exasperation, the pastor says, son, can you not tell me where Jesus is? The boy just sits there. So finally he's had enough. He says, all right, listen, get out of here and send your buddy in. The boy hurries out of the office, back into the sanctuary, where he finds his friend still sitting there on the front row, obviously been crying the whole time. He looks up at him and he says, what happened in there? Are we in trouble? The other boy says, oh, yeah, we are in deep trouble. And the window is the least of our problems. Jesus is missing, and he thinks we got something to do with it. Now listen, I've known some Christians in my day who lived their lives like Jesus is missing. He's nowhere to be found, out of sight and out of mind. But y'all know better than that. We've been looking at it over the past couple of months. Jesus isn't missing. We know right where he is. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, Ruling and reigning over all creation, bringing it to its appointed end when he will return and establish his everlasting kingdom here on earth. Jesus is not missing. What I want to do today as we kind of wrap up our discussion of the end times is try to press on you why the future return of Christ matters. See, I believe the certainty of Christ's return and the criteria of His judgment that we're going to see here in Matthew 25 ought to compel us as His people to live compassionate lives in the world. Certainty of His return, the criteria of His judgment should compel us as His people to live compassionate lives while we're here on earth. So I want you to open up your Bible with me to Matthew 25. We're going to see a real familiar passage And I hope it becomes clear to you. If you have your Bible, I do encourage you to open it. If I do my job right, this sermon won't make sense without the open Bible in front of you. Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 31. And so, if you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, sounds like maybe 73% of you. I'm going to give you a couple more seconds. And we'll get there to Matthew 25 and verse 31. This is what Jesus told his disciples. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He'll separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right, and the goats He'll put on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father... Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. But then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? When? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Y'all, let's pray. Father in heaven, well, those are heavy words. Give us wisdom to understand what you want to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this passage is familiar to you. Matthew 24 and 25 are what we call Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He's standing on the Mount of Olives that overlooks the Temple Mount with his disciples, and the conversation he has with them really got started when they pointed to the temple as impressive. They say, Jesus, what do you think about this impressive building project that has been undertaken and completed? He said, it's beautiful, but i got to tell you guys some bad news. A day's coming with not one stone's going to be left stacked on top of the other, and things kind of go downhill from there. He tells them about the future destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to come upon the city in AD 70 because they rejected him as the Messiah. And then as many of the prophets do, and as Daniel did, and we saw this winter, he looked beyond that destruction of Jerusalem almost like a foreshadowing of the future destruction that the whole world would experience. And so he pressed on his disciples the need to be prepared. He gave them three parables of preparedness. Uh, one talking about the slave that's left in charge of the household by his master. The need to be busy about the master's work. Then the parable of the 10 virgins, five who had oil for their lamps and were anxiously waiting for the bridegroom's arrival, but five who hadn't taken the necessary precautions and when the bridegroom came their lamps were lit and they were locked out of the celebration. And lastly the parable of the talents. Or a master entrusted his servants with a sum of money, and two of them invested it and earned return, but one buried his in the ground. The master returned, found that he had been fruitless, and punished him. And then we move beyond parable to verse 31, which is not a parable, but a prophetic foretelling of future events. You might can imagine what it would have experienced felt like to experience it, Jesus looking you in the eye after telling you about all this destruction that's coming, then to hear that His return will be the end of the end. Then the Son of Man will come in His glory and all the angels with Him and He'll sit on His glorious throne. So as Jesus wraps up His teaching on the end of the world, He presses on His disciples the certainty of His future return. It's not a metaphor, not a parable, not a fictional story like the one I told you about the boys throwing rocks, meant to draw them in and get his hooks in them so he can get the real meat across. He's telling them something that will certainly one day happen. In fact, the Baptist theologian, Millard Erickson, says that of all the doctrines taught in the New Testament, the future bodily return of Christ is the most prevalent and it's true. If you look across the New Testament, you'd find overwhelming evidence that Jesus and his first disciples believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day he would return from heaven where he had ascended. He told him as much in John 14. You could look this up, John 14, 1 through 3. Uh, he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. But if I go to prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come again and bring you to myself so that you will be with me forever. Jesus is gonna leave, but He's gonna come back and He's gonna be with His people forever. On the day of His ascension, disciples on a mountain, watch Him float away into the sky. And they're standing there, mouths wide open, you know, staring up into the heavens. And then they look back down and two angels are there with them, say, Men of Galilee, why are you just staring at the sky? Don't you know the same Jesus who just ascended into heaven will one day descend again? This is the overwhelming teaching of the New Testament and probably one of the least relevant to the way most Christians live their lives. We know Christ will return someday, but what really does that mean for us? Either we're here when He comes or we're not. Either way, we're going to be with Jesus forever in heaven But I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, and I want you to see why the return of Christ is such an important doctrine for Christians to know, cherish, and believe. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica, and they're they're concerned, we can't really connect with this, but they're concerned that maybe they've missed it. Maybe Christ has already come back, and they've been forgotten. They've been left behind. And so Paul tries to encourage them, and he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And get this. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The certainty of Christ's future return is supposed to mean something for Christians. It's supposed to change the way we live, and part of the reason it does is because of what Jesus says next, but he's not just going to show up inauspiciously, just like all of a sudden you look there, and, oh, there he is, but actually he says he's going to return in glory. He's going to return in glory. Verse 31, he uses the word twice. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. You know, it's like when we go, well, I was going to say when our wives go, but I don't want to throw them under the bus. But our wives sometimes go shopping, and then they sometimes go shopping, shopping. You know, they really mean it. Jesus is talking about some kind of double glory. He's going to come back in glory, and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. This word glory is huge. It's huge. In the Bible, the glory of God is the visible manifestation of all that he is in himself. It's the overflow of his excellency that people see. Like yesterday, driving back from Houston, there was like a three-hour glorious sunset all the way down I-10, just giant orange sun slowly descending. And you think, wow, Central Texas has the most beautiful sunsets, and God really knows how to put on a show. That's why David could say, the sky above declares the handiworks of God, the stars declare His glory. You see it. Wow, what amazing God who could do something like this. The strange thing is Jesus says when He comes back, the glory will be caught up and all around Him. in His first coming, you know, we just celebrated Christmas. Jesus is born as a baby, meek, mild, laid in a manger. Isaiah, we read it last week, Isaiah 53. He had nothing about Him that drew our attention to Him. He didn't seem that important. He didn't appear to be royal. Royal babies are born in castles. He didn't appear to be a warrior. They're tall, head and shoulders above all the rest, powerful. He wasn't tall, dark, handsome. He had nothing about him that drew our attention to him. He's born in a backwater town, grew up in Nazareth, made his living, eked it out bit by bit as a carpenter. Not very glorious, the way of the world goes. But in his second coming, he doesn't come meek and mild. He comes shrouded in the glory of God, and every eye will see him and fall down before him and melt before him, like wax melts before a fire. He'll return in glory. And when he does, the second thing is just as important. He'll gather the nations. Gather the nations. This is the universal judgment of God. It'll fall on every person who ever lived in every time and in every place on this great big blue ball. Everybody assembled before him. Revelation 21 says it will be both the great and the small. That means there's no extra like private waiting room for the rich and the powerful so they can have their judgment done privately out of prying eyes. No, everybody's there. Every last one of them. Can your mind imagine it? Millions and billions of people stretched out before the throne of Jesus. The Son of Man come in His glory to judge the world. That changes the way I want to live my life. To know that someday I'm going to stand before that judgment seat and give an account for every word I've ever spoken. That's what Paul says in Romans 14. Every careless word I've ever spoken, everything I've ever done, every thought I've ever thought, is going to be written out in Jesus' books, and He's going to judge me, evaluate me. Look at the content of my life. That ought to change the way we live. But it's not just the certainty of his return. It's the criteria he's going to use at that judgment. And he moves beyond that into, thir- into verse 34 when he starts going through all these things. He says he's going to shep-erate, separate, separate, shepherd, <laughs> separate the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This isn't a parable. Lots of people think this is a parable. It's not a parable, it's a metaphor, it's a simile as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, which means that there is going to be a real separation. And if you're trying to imagine or try to analogize to our personal experience what it might be like, the kind of judgment Jesus is going to perform is the same kind of judgment that shepherds perform when they separate out the goats from their herd from the sheep. Now, I don't know a lot about sheep and goats, but I asked my six-year-old, hey, do you know the difference between a sheep and a goat? He said, oh yeah, goats have horns. Like, okay, fair enough. Goats do have horns. But, you know, you start thinking about the differences between sheep and goats, and you can start making a pretty big list. You know, Mike was going through it from time spent with kids in 4-H. You know the difference. Sheep have puffy woolen coats. Most goats just have kind of hair. Sometimes it's cashmere, so it's valuable. Sometimes it's mohair, whatever that is. But it's different, and obviously so, even from the outside looking in. So I learned sheep and goats have different kind of lips. You know that sheep have lips that have a division in them. Goats just kind of have human lips. They just come down over their teeth. They do, like goats normally have horns. Rams have horns, but not sheep. They have different personalities. Do you know that goats are meaner than sheep are? They have different grazing habits, sheep like grass, goats will eat pretty much anything you put in front of them. You know, inside, if you were to draw their blood, put it in a powerful scientific computer, it would tell you they are genetically different, possessing different numbers of chromosomes. But you don't have to know all that. It's obvious to everyone. You got a goat, you got a sheep. Doesn't take rocket scientists to figure it out. They are what they are. Their outward appearance reveals their differences. And Jesus says that when he returns, it will be as easy for him to divide the nations as it is for a shepherd to divide sheep from goats. He doesn't have to get into the nitty-gritty. What's really the difference? We're all human. Come on, everybody makes mistakes. We're all human. You don't have to get into the philosophy or the theology behind it. Jesus says that it will be as easy for him to separate the nations into two groups, as it is for a shepherd, to divide his flock between sheep and goats. So we need to know, y'all, what criteria Jesus is going to use. Because I don't know if you noticed, the outcome of this judgment is uh, huge. Long-term implications for ending up in the wrong group. Everlasting life for the one, or everlasting torment for the other. You need to know the criteria Jesus is going to use. And it's a startling criteria, isn't it? He says in verse 34, Come you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you came to me. I was in prison, and you visited me. When Jesus starts identifying the criteria he's going to use in his judgment, he starts looking at the things people did. The way they lived their lives. And that's startling for me. You know, it wouldn't have been for Jesus' first disciples. The Judaism of the first century was really, in a lot of ways, a works-based system of religion. If you're a reader of the New Testament, you know Jesus had long interactions with the scribes and Pharisees who related to God primarily in terms of their obedience. They believed that someday if they were going to be counted faithful and raised up in the resurrection, it would be because they had lived faithfully to God's law. They'd obeyed it. And so they set up not only the actual 600 and something laws of the Old Testament, but they created all these fences, they called them and thought of them as. Extra rules that would keep somebody from even getting close to breaking God's law. Jesus called those things the traditions of men. And he said, You guys are so caught up in your traditions that you've neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy. But his disciples would have known what he's talking about. Works of charity were one of the pillars of first century Judaism. But it's startling to us and, and me, I can only speak for myself, because I believe that a person is saved by grace alone through faith alone. The salvation is a gift of God, not of works, so that none may boast. And yet when I see Jesus' judgment here, the criteria he clearly describes is based on feeding the hungry, giving a drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, welcoming the stranger, and visiting prisoners. Sounds a lot like works to me. But there are two clues that that's not exactly what he means. The first is the people called blessed are so surprised that they're blessed. They haven't lived their lives looking for every opportunity to feed hungry people, to give drinks to thirsty people. They weren't out there trying to accrue merit to their account so that when they stood before the judgment seat of God, He would say, hey, you did enough. You can come in. They're totally surprised. say, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you naked? When were you a stranger? When were you sick? When were you in prison? They have no clue. They just were living their lives and naturally were taking care of people. But the second clue is Jesus says, come you who are blessed. Receive the inheritance, my Father, prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Um, you cannot earn an inheritance. An inheritance is something that comes to you almost by chance and accident. Who are you to decide which family you were born into? You didn't have any claim to that. Just a product of God's grace in your life that you received the inheritance you received. More than that, Jesus says that God had prepared their inheritance from the foundation of the world. Before they were born, before they had ever done any good thing or bad thing, God had determined in His wisdom that we can't search out, that these people were going to receive the inheritance that He had prepared for them. So it's not salvation by works. It's still salvation by grace. And yet, hear me, as Jesus' parting words to His disciples on the end of the world, the future judgment that was coming, he doesn't tell them that he's going to analyze people's personal internal sense of relationship to God. Like Henry David Thoreau's um, aunt, he was laying on his deathbed. And she said, Henry, have you made peace with God? I don't know if you know Thoreau. I went through this weird phase in high school. but She said, Henry, have you made peace with God? And he said, I didn't know we had ever quarreled. Jesus doesn't judge a person based on their subjective sense of peace with God. He doesn't judge them on good intentions or theological orthodoxy. Jesus says that He's going to judge based on one criteria. As you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You see, we are in the habit of separating out our beliefs and the life we live. Beliefs and behavior, faith and works. But for the Bible, things are much more complicated, integrated. Jesus says there is an inseparable link between who you are at the root of your person and the fruit you bear in your life. Those things are connected. What's the most important thing about you is not what you do or what you believe, but it's the person you're becoming. God intends for His people to be becoming like he is, to become compassionate in the same way that he's compassionate so that they're not keeping a record. Oh, yeah, I remember when I fed that hungry person. That's right. Thanks for reminding me. No, just as a natural outflow of who they are becoming, as a person recreated in the image of Christ, indwelled by his Spirit, living only for the glory of the Father, they naturally look for opportunities to take care of the needy. That's what Jesus is going to judge based on. How have you cared for the nobodies? I want to talk to you about the nobodies of the world. Maybe some of these hit you strangely. The hungry we get, I was hungry and you fed me. The thirsty makes sense too. We can all relate to that. We've been hungry. We've been thirsty. We've participated in grocery giveaways and food banks. We've distributed waters at the watermelon thump. We know what it means to give food and to give water. But then we see the naked. That's a little weird. First century, though, Jesus is not talking about people who have taken off their clothes for some strange reason, but for the fact that they're so poor, they don't even have clothes. Paupers, peasants, who, people who wore rags, they had one change of clothes, and it's their clothes they wore. What are you going to do for a person like that, Jesus says? You're going to clothe them? You're going to give them the coat off your back? You're going to give them the tunic too when they ask? What about the stranger? We go on Hotels.com and you can take your pick. Three star, four star, five star. What kind of hotel do you want to stay in? But you know that in the first century, they didn't have that kind of hospitality industry. The hospitality industry was the people of God in a specific place. A stranger comes in from out of town. They may not look like you. may not speak your dialect from the region that you grew up in. They don't have any connections to the social networks you know. They are totally untrustworthy. No criminal database to run their record. No way of knowing if this person is who they say they are or what they might have done in their life. Are you really going to take a chance on inviting a person like that into your home? Maybe like the men of Sodom. You understand? Well, no room was left, and so they put him out on the corner of the street, sleeping in the square of the town. Only Lot in that terrible story was the one who opened his home, and he's no symbol of righteousness or upright character. What about Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem looking for a room to stay in? Nobody there to open the inn. Just as the people of God are going to be judged on the criteria of their hospitality to the strangers. Did they welcome them? The sick and those in prison, we get that. There's a lot of overlap with today. The nobodies, the forgottens of the world. Now, If we were to assemble our own list, or better yet, if Jesus were to descend today for just a little while, set our church on course for ministry for the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and He took each one of us by the hand, and said, I'm going to go back to heaven take my place back on my throne, but I want you guys to be busy about my work while I'm gone. So I'm going to show you exactly where you ought to focus your attention. Where would Jesus Christ take me and you today? What streets of our city would He show us? What homes would the people be living in? Listen, the future return of Christ ought to cause you to shake in your boots. What an indictment on the people of God. And so then we start to think, okay, the nobodies of the world, really, really. What's the big deal about the nobodies? They're there, many of them, let's be honest, by decisions they've made, personal choices, You don't become a drug addict without choosing to take drugs. That's their deal. But listen, there are three reasons why nobodies matter to God. One, in God's wisdom, it's unsearchable, Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable it is. Nobodies have a special place in the heart of God. So David could say, Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widow. For some reason, God delights in being known as the God of riffraff, nobodies, forgotten people. So that Hosea could say that when God saved Israel, it wasn't like he strode into Egypt and found a people perfectly prepared for him. No, it was like he found an abandoned child left on the side of the road, totally dirty, caked in filth, and naked. God picked it up, carried it back to his home, cleaned it, and dressed it. God spoke through Moses. He said, I didn't choose your fathers because they were the greatest nation, most powerful or most numerous. I chose your fathers because they were weak. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, Not many of you brothers were wise. Not many of you were rich or powerful. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Why does Jesus judge based on this criteria how His people care for nobodies? Because nobodies aren't nobody to God. God delights in magnifying His mercy and His compassion to people who don't deserve it. If Israel had have been Egypt, God saved Egypt. The world could have said, well, God just chose them because they had it all together. Their civilization was already on the ascendancy, building monuments that would last for millennia. God just sort of gave His rubber stamp of approval to the things they had already done. But Israel was enslaved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's nothing about you commendable to God, nothing within you that says you're perfectly deserving of His mercy and compassion. It's the exact opposite. Nothing... Good within me dwells, Paul said. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, nobodies have a special place in God's heart. So special, in fact, that number two, when God decided He was going to send His Son into the world to save these nobodies, He publicly identified with them and actually entered in to their nobody status. So Jesus wasn't born in a royal palace. He was born in a manger, a stable, where the animals were. He didn't have a great job. He wasn't from a specific family that gave him access to the religious establishment and the best education one could find. He's a blue-collar guy, building monuments and tables. Then when he begins his public ministry, he totally distances himself. From the rich and powerful, choosing instead to eat with sinners, to talk to Samaritans, to touch lepers, to suffer the insults of being called a friend of sinner and a drunkard. Listen, Jesus died between two criminals. Nobody's matter to God. He proved it by identifying with them so much that Jesus could tell His disciples, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And so number three, nobody's matter to God so much that He expects His people to develop the same kind of concern that He has. And so we could say in Isaiah 58, which Mike read for us, and it's totally powerful Here are the people of God, wondering why he's abandoned them, turned his back on them. They're still coming to church, still going through the religious motions, the rituals of fasts and feasts and sacrifices offered on the altar. But God's not there. And y'all know how demoralizing it can be to be in church, but God not be there. You've been there probably. You're singing the songs, the preacher's preaching, but the Spirit of God is nowhere to be found. And God says, the reason is because you think that by your religious devotion, you can somehow earn my approval, that I'm going to bless what you're doing, That I'm going to show up in a powerful way. (coughs) But you've approached the thing the wrong way. What I'm looking for is not a bunch of people fasting, going through the motions of religiosity, I'm looking for people who sacrifice for the poor in their midst, who welcome strangers into their homes. Micah says it in Micah 6. In fact, you may want to open it with me and read it as I read it, you may want to underline it, you may want to tattoo it on your heart. Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? God's not showing up in my quiet time. God's nowhere to be found at church. So maybe I need to extend my quiet time to a couple hours. Maybe the quantity and not the quality will finally earn me the blessing of God that I want. Shall, shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Oh, maybe not that. Maybe I need to show Him how willing I am to sacrifice. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What do you want from me, God. What's it going to take for me to get the blessing that I know you have for me? What is it going to take? You know, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? James says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit an orphan in their affliction to take care of widows, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what God wants for His people. That's the criteria Jesus is going to use when He shows up. How well did your actions in the world reflect my heart for the nobodies? Scares me to death. Are you the type of person who looks for opportunities to love the nobodies? He says, on the day of judgment, the goats will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and a stranger and sick and in prison? I think what he means is, there are going to be people on the day of judgment who are surprised that they are not in the sheep group. They're going to appeal to their good intentions. Lord, had it been you, had we seen you suffering, we would have definitely been there. Who can deny the fact that there are hungry people in the world? But Lord, had you been there, had we seen you hungry, you know we would have looked out for you. They'll appeal to their good intentions. Jesus says in Matthew 7, there will be people who even appeal to the works they've done for him. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and heal the sick in your name. And I'll say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never even knew you. There will be people on the Day of Judgment surprised. I imagine they'll appeal to their church attendance, their giving, their offerings, their Bible reading, their Scripture memory, their theological orthodoxy. There will people, be people among the multitudes of, of the world shocked to enter hell. But you don't have to. Today, for some reason, God's wisdom again, divine appointment, you're here hearing this message. Just like Jesus' disciples were that day. And now you know the criteria you are going to be judged by. You know His expectation. That He expects His people to develop the same kind of concern for nobodies that He has. In fact, the Apostle John put it clearly in 1 John 2. The one who says he abides in Him ought to Himself walk in the same manner as He walked. If you know Jesus, you're going to live the kind of life Jesus lived. And so the truth is, there are many self-professing Christians who are living lives where Jesus is missing. Their lives and His life don't look anything alike. Jesus would say to you, if that is you today, Beware. And if, like me, your heart is moved by the future judgment of Jesus, and you're like, hey, I I know that there have been times when God has given me a clear opportunity to take care of somebody who was in need, and I totally, I just missed it completely. I turned my back on the hungry person. I avoided the person on the sidewalk asking for money. I roll my window up whenever I see people at the red light begging for change. You know that the spotlight is on you. And you want to know how on earth does anybody ever change? How do you go from being a person totally unconcerned with nobodies to being a person that's life just naturally overflows like Jesus did? He didn't have to look for opportunities to take care of broken people. They found Him. How do we become people? Like that. I believe it fundamentally begins with remembering that we are all nobodies. Told you last week, the cross is the great equalizer. Nobody stands before Jesus with privilege, a leg up, a head start. Every last one of us is the same, each of us helpless deaden our sins when God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. And I love, told you a couple weeks ago, I've been meditating on Romans 5 because it so captures my heart. And this f- weird grammatical phrase Paul uses in Romans 5-7, that one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good man one would dare even to die. I've never really understood that. That verse, from a grammatical perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Paul says, people don't die for righteous people. And then he caveats it and says, well, maybe, I guess, certain circumstances, somebody might would die for a good person. I, don't, I never have really captured that. And what all Paul is doing is setting it up. Because it's conceivable, though not normal, that you'd be willing to take a bullet for a good person But there are certain cases in the world, heroes fall on grenades for their comrades in battle. Husbands stand up for their wives and get murdered. But God wasn't standing up for the best of the best. Now while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. The truth is, we are all nobodies. And if you want to become a person who lives the kind of life Jesus is talking about, who looks for the hungry and thirsty, who seeks out the strangers, the naked, who seeks the sick and the imprisoned, it will be because you become so enraptured with what God has done for you in Jesus that it naturally overflows into your life. Just like Mike said. The gospel isn't the answer to your problem. You don't understand your problem. we got about five minutes left. You can look at your watch. And so I'm just going to make it real clear this morning. Do you know what the Bible says the good news of Jesus is? The Bible says the good news is this. That though God created you for a personal purpose, Relationship with Him. By your sin, you have totally rebelled against Him and abandoned Him. as a result, you stand condemned before Him. No amount of good works, good intentions, good theology can earn your way to heaven. But you've tried. You've done the thing. You've done the church thing. You've done the Jesus thing. Given that a shot. And when that didn't work out, you look for other stuff. Relationships, substances, experience, vacation, something that's going to give you that sense that Thoreau had of peace with God or the universe or whatever you like to call it. But as you pursued those things, you found that none satisfies the deep longing within your soul to know the God who loves you and who made you. And you never will find it. But God saw you in your brokenness. He saw you in your need when you were caked in sin and filth and death. And because of the great love with which He loved you, even when you were dead in your sins, He sent His own Son to enter in to the brokenness of our world, to know hunger, To know thirst. To know what it means to be mocked and spit upon. Hated by the world. So that he could live a life of complete perfection. The life that you should have lived. The life that you owe your Creator. Just to die on a cross between two common criminals. To suffer the wrath of God that you deserve. Why? Because you're not so messed up, so broken, so lost, so dirty. You're not a nobody enough that God doesn't love you. And this morning, He invites you to turn your back on a life of sinfulness. To accept the fact that you don't have anything that would commend you to God. And to take hold of Jesus by faith. To commit to living completely for Him. That is your invitation. That is the gospel. And when a person understands that, it changes everything else about their lives.